Good afternoon, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. I'm Doug Padgett talking with Tamise Spencer-Helms, who has just written a great book. And Tamise, couldn't be more excited for you to be here. Thanks for being on the Common Good Podcast today. Uh, big fan of your book. Uh, a big fan of your work, actually, Faith Unleavened. Um, it, it's a beautiful metaphor and so glad to have you. So thanks for being on the, on the podcast thanks today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Hey, tell us, uh, t- tell us where you're sitting right now. Where, where, are we, where are we chatting from? I'm in Minneapolis. I'll let you know that in my little basement studio. Where, where are you coming from? Oh, I'm coming to you from the lands of the Mattapanai and Sinacomica and Powhatan land, otherwise known as Richmond, Virginia. That's great. So uh, you're, you're naming the indigenous space, uh, indigenous name and the land that was taken. That's, that's so helpful, so important. Is that something you've known about for a long time or how, how has that gone for you learning and understanding the, the history of the place where you're living in? Yeah, I um, I would say that it's really been kind of a process of learning. One of my really dear friends, Sarah Quint, has been teaching me a lot about acknowledging land and uh, understanding that we're on stolen, stolen land. Um, I started learning that with Randy Woodley and, and folks like that, uh, but recently kind of learning about the importance of uh, indigenous land as it relates to my blackness. I've been learning that mm-hmm. from my friend Sarah Quint, and um, actually I'm living on her land. And so um, this is the land of her peoples. And so I kind of take that really seriously. And, and we teach our daughter to kind of steward the land as though we're taking care of it for Auntie Sarah and stuff like that. So that's uh, that's where we are with that. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> so it's <learning>. never arrived. <laughs> what, 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 where did you grow up? Where, where was home? Um, so I grew up uh, about two hours from here in Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, it was right like about 15, 20 minutes from the beach. And I lived there until I went to college here in Richmond. Uh, then I moved to uh, the Midwest. I moved down south and I moved back to Virginia. Okay. And, and, and I've got a dog here that is barking and some folks moving around the house, just so you uh, know. <laughs> you know what? Around here on the on the Common Good podcast and live stream, we love that kind of stuff, right? Okay, people, perfect. People live real <laughs> lives, right? And people are doing and saying and, and all the things that they're doing from, from real yeah. places in, in real spaces and not a problem, yeah. not a problem yeah. around here at all. All right. Awesome. So, um, we're going to talk about your book, uh, here in a bit okay. and about the content of it, but, um, that's not all you do. You're not just an author, you're an activist and you're a <laughs> spokesperson. You have these beautiful rambles on, uh, yes. on social media, by the way, that you call them, uh, really great. <laughs> it's a great notion. When I, when I heard, uh, one of your yeah. videos where you said that someone had said, uh, Hey, Tamise, I think you should do one of your rambles on this. I thought that is a... <laughs> You nailed that. It's a great frame. Um, Thank you. But, but you also help students find their way into and be successful in higher education. I do. Yeah, that's my goal. So in 2018, I started a, a nonprofit called Subculture Incorporated. Um, and Subculture really exists to remove the barriers that Black college students face to uh, graduation, to academic success, holistic well-being, social flourishing, mental health. Um, we want to get in there and provide the resources and even the crisis relief in a financial way mm. um, that would remove any kind of barrier so that if they face a roadblock, that roadblock doesn't become a dead end for them. Because we know that, unfortunately, for people of color, you know, school is a is a major pathway to kind of closing wealth gap and, and developing generational wealth. And so, the way that we work our advocacy out is by educating folks on the disparities, but then also providing real time help uh, for Black college students who are in crisis. Such a great idea. What 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 led you to that? Was that your own experience in college that it was difficult, or you saw it in other people's well, experiences? 
Not so much my experience. Um, I was I was fortunate. My parents um, my parents went to Hampton University, which was an HBCU, mm-hmm. um, and my father saved up uh, for me to go to college in state, <laughs> um, and so that's what I did. Um, but really, it was my work with Black college students um, as a minister, as a campus minister, um, and watching my students face uh, crises and things that I would watch my white students face, and you know, grandma would come through or somebody. They had a web of support around them hmm. um, that a lot of my black students just didn't have. And I'm, you know, a broke campus minister that can only do so much. Um, and so it was really uh, it, it was it was weighing on me. And then there was a I read this quote by Desmond Tutu that really kind of changed my thinking about everything. And uh, and so I just started subculture to address not to necessarily reinvent the wheel, but to reinforce it by providing for students what I couldn't provide for them when I was in campus ministry. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's a it's a beautiful idea. So glad you're doing it, and you've uh, you've launched uh, into being an author. You have this book coming up. I think you're just in, <laughs> yeah. in a week or so. Is that right? Is release date like Tuesday? Next, next Tuesday. We yeah. Like to- we like to remind people in our chats here that uh, books come out on Tuesday. A lot of people don't know that. Um, movies <laughs> release on, on Fridays and you know podcasts yeah. do whatever day you want to do them, but uh, books come out yeah. on Tuesday. So this yeah. Tuesday, people can pre-order Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd. Um, yeah. All right. So so this book has this, this wonderful... Uh, metaphor in the title, uh, Faith yeah. Unleavened, the idea that there of, of leaven, which is a thing that was true in first century uh, Jewish culture and, and still yeah. important to people today, but the idea that a little bit of something starts to sort of impact and grow the way that right. leaven experiences in, in making of bread. And you suggest mm-hmm. that there was a whiteness, a leaven of whiteness in the Christianity that you experienced. Yes. And that's a really powerful metaphor. And then there's another metaphor in the subtitle, which is the wilderness between Trayvon Martin and George sure. Floyd. And both mm-hmm. of these are powerful things, right? How do you live in the wilderness and how do you travel without the leaven? These are like mm-hmm. ancient human storylines that you're that you're getting into. So so that that's what the book is about for those who haven't had a chance to see it yet, is you're you're trying to navigate these questions um, of what mm-hmm. does it mean to have a Christianity that's not so impacted by a particular cultural form that it makes it difficult. Right. And it comes with such pain and such violence uh, in its history that it's, uh, sure. it's it's really just rather not only unappealing to people, it's quite dangerous to people. So, uh, it's true. Tell, it's very true. Thank right. you for saying <laughs> So, so, So these are uh, the things we're going to talk about. Um, what got you into, into this particular form? Like you want to write this in a book and you want to, you want to use these driving metaphors of the Trayvon Martin to George Floyd narrative, which is mm-hmm. both experience and incident, but also is a, is a calendar, right? It's mm-hmm. a time. It tells us there's a, there's a period of time. Is, is that how you were thinking about that wilderness absolutely. in those spaces? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, so in terms of thinking about the wilderness piece, I think when you think about wilderness in terms of using the biblical motif of wilderness, usually people are drawn to the wilderness to connect with God, Mm. to learn about themselves, to confront themselves, to confront the dangers around them, right? And they end up emerging from this sort of desolate place with a new amount of freedom, but also a revolutionized view of God. Mm. And um, for me, my wilderness journey really started when Trayvon was killed. Mm. Um, because it it revealed to me that there was something 
that was not right about um, loving and knowing a Jesus who didn't really know me and know why I would be in pain over something like that. And of course, you know, um, I was experiencing God in that place um, and in the pain of that place. But the responses of peers um, and even some of the rhetoric from pulpits uh, was very confusing for me at that time and showed me that this there's no way for me to persist in this. Um, and so uh, I was bound to it. I, I, I loved Jesus. I was a very faithful uh, disciple. I think I'm still a very faithful disciple. Uh, but I, re I remember having to go through this process of like kind of figuring out what happened here. And I hit this place, the book starts uh, in 2015, where I hit this place after just this real despair and depression and realized that something had been added um, to, to the Christianity that I inherited uh, from the white evangelical spaces I grew up in. Um, and so that was where kind of the journey started. And the journey started with this idea of the unleavened bread um, of the wilderness, which kind of precipitates that journey and realizing that Jesus is bread, mm -hmm. uh, bread of life, and that too much leaven is toxic <laughs> for nice. the bread itself. Mm -hmm. um, and it will make you sick. It will kill you. And that's that's really what why Jesus was doing, why Jesus was killing me um, very slowly. <laughs> um, and so it really did take that um you know, that devastation of Trayvon to really wake me up to begin to s sort of see that stuff and begin to extract it. And that's the kind of the story I tell. Um, and then when George Floyd happened, um, I experienced the murder of George Floyd, George Floyd very differently um, than I did Trayvon. And that was actually what tipped me off to, wow, there's been a work that's been happening here. And that's why I started to write the stuff down and kind of tell that story. Um, it was in hindsight, looking back and seeing, oh, okay, this is what's happened. I'm, I'm unleavened, you know, and I was in a wilderness and I've emerged with this new understanding of God. Um, and this new amount of freedom that I'm taking with me, right? Um, and so that's kind of where the book is centered around. And it just beautifully lined up, um, um, but it wasn't planned. <laughs> so that's, that's where we are. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful working uh, narrative and, and the way you tell it here is, is captivating as well. I, I can imagine that as you're beginning to recognize the things from 2015 moving forward, you're, you're embedded in your faith, it's your job, like your, mm -hmm. your employment's tied into it. You, yeah. Your family is from a tradition of this. As you start to notice these shifts in you yeah. and you start to see things about the faith that you have been living in and that you inherited, and you're yes. like, this isn't what I wanted it, I want it to be now and I didn't have any control over it then, mm -hmm. but I have some control over how I'm going to move forward now. Mm -hmm. How did that mm -hmm. land on the people in your life? How did it land on your parents when you start saying, look, I was introduced to an evangelical form of Christianity that gave me a white Jesus that I'm not all that interested in. That yeah. can start to yeah. feel, you know, that can land close. Or you say that to people in your work environment. How, how did that go as you started to unleaven um, yes, it landed on my family um, beautifully. And it's interesting, the level of uh, scrutiny I had towards folks who weren't in that white evangelical space, because what was interesting was the very people that, that I had been sort of, I don't know, over time had just become hmm. dismissive towards were still there. 
and still faithful and not struggling in their faith <laughs> at all. Um, and here I was, this person who had told them how far away from Jesus they were and how you know they didn't have as much depth in God. And I'm struggling and spinning out. Um, but they, my family was extremely gracious. They, um, they talked to me about the experience. Um, they never judged me. And I know that there's a there's a section in the book where you you get to hear from my father in the book, um, a letter that he wrote me. And um, it was interesting there to feel like my family's been here this whole time. It added to the grief and the, and the mm. regret. Um, in the other spaces. <laughs> um, you know, it really was an awakening. And I know that woke has this connotation now, but it was an awakening for me. And in 2012, 2013, woke was an appropriate way to describe what was happening for people because uh, they just didn't realize that this is the way the world was for a lot of them that were in these sort of white evangelical spaces. Um, and so I got a lot of texts, a lot of, hey, sisters, hey, you've been on my mind. Hey, I had a dream about you. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. those types of God put you on my heart. Uh, type of things. Um, and I just could not figure out why me loving being black uh, and hating the pillaging and violence being done to black bodies, why that would cause any concern uh, for my white brothers and sisters. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, and, you know, you, you hang with it for a while and then 2016 happens. Um, and that was kind of like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Like one of these things is not like the other because I'm calling to mind the, the comments and the things everyone was worried about in 2008. And I'm going eight years later, none of that matters. And so there was something else at work here. Um, and so when I began to be vocal about that, um, I pretty much lost, <laughs> lost everybody. I got about one or two left, <laughs> but for the most part, they kind of, you know, exited. You mean people uh, from your, from your work world or your sort of faith support system when you yeah, start, you start talking about politics and culture and all of these things, yes. like everything was, was under the scrutiny. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it was friends and, and, and people I considered to be family at the time, yeah. you know, it was really hard to feel like, you know, and I was having these conversations with folks over the phone even and um, saying, hey, this is what you don't understand. This is what, because, you, you know, I went on my journey and I'm learning about all these things. And I'm like, here's what you probably don't know. Um, and it would always be, yeah, yeah, but abortion or yeah, yeah, but the gays or yeah, yeah, but, you know, um, and it's like, hey, I'm asking you to love me and you're saying, yeah, yeah, but I'm telling you I'm in pain and my soul is being crushed and I'm being traumatized <laughs> right now by the state of things. And you're saying, yeah, yeah, but and and for a person that had no uh, the idea that that would be the person that they would say the yeah, yeah, but about yeah. Um, it showed me it showed me how much um, I was valued in those relationships. Um, and I think that, that that's not, I don't necessarily blame them. I think, I think whiteness makes, especially, yeah, whiteness and white Jesus, things are very transactional. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as you unleaven, you'll start to experience how transactional even your relationships were. Um, and so it, it was a bittersweet process, you know. Uh, and I would imagine, I don't want to put, put words in your mouth on this, but I want to ask you if this was true because I've experienced this and seen it in so many other situations as well, yeah. that as you start to say, look, I think there was something added to the spirituality that I was given mm -hmm. and I want to move forward without that and I want to name it and I want to be attentive to it. 
-hmm. When other people don't see those things, they think you're adding something. They think you're now saying you're giving up the gospel or the Jesus narrative or something, and you've moved into this other area. So they they become the hero protecting the true thing. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, no, I'm trying to show you. And this thing that happens where the inability to see the other thing and to sort of consider that the other person is doing the thing that you're trying to protect. What uh, you're nodding. What was that? Was that your experience? Yes, it was. I mean, I talk about that in the chapter sidewalks, right? It's this idea of gatekeeping and, you know, it's so interesting how these things, and I I do, you know, I'm still um, a person of faith. And so I see these threads and I'm grateful for them. Uh, because even thinking about gatekeeping and thinking about George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, right? A self-appointed gatekeeper, a self-appointed neighborhood watch person confronts this boy in his own neighborhood who is unarmed. He has nothing but candy and an iced tea, right? And somehow he's the threat and somehow he's the intruder, right? And in the same way, these people are saying, you know, there are some things that are not jiving with my faith and what I'm seeing about Jesus and what was compelling to me about Jesus and the way um, that it's playing out in society, (laughs) right? And in my mental health. Um, And you're the one adding. And it's like, I'm not bothering anyone. I I mean, you know, I'm not out here asking you to, to take up my stance or anything. I'm just saying I'm human. I have dignity. God loves me like I am. Um, and you're telling me that's addition, but that's that's because of the leaven, right? Like in, in the same way that a, a, a arm, an unarmed boy with a hoodie could be dangerous in his own neighborhood, that's the same leaven that makes a person who is getting free a threat to Christianity. Wow. It's the same leaven. It's whiteness, right? Because whiteness is about ownership and transaction and binary and categorization. And you can't do those things um, you can only do those things in whiteness. Like that's Mm. what it's set up to do. And so when that infiltrates our vision of Jesus or God, well, you, you see what that looks Mm. like in society right now. Right. Um, Even with these, like he gets us campaigns. The question is, well, he gets who, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right. Um, There's no qualifiers. And so then, you know, I, of course me, um, still being the precocious kid that I am, I went to the website and I'm looking at who's putting the ads out. Like, where are these coming from? Where do the links click? And what do those people believe are the us, right? Who is the us to those people? Uh, because he gets us is great, <laughs> but it, it matters who the us is and it matters what that means for the us. Um, because I think it's gr- I think it's amazing on the one hand that they're really kind of putting Jesus out here, and on the other hand, it's kind of like a billion dollars going towards an ad campaign could put a lot of people in homes, <laughs> right? Like you know, and totally. so he yep. gets us could show up like, hey, I'm gonna help you with your rent, or I'm gonna, you know, like he can get us that way too, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and so it, it, those are the types of questions I think unleavening has started to cause me to ask. Right. It's a, it's, it starts this, this like spiritual chemical process that doesn't end, right? <laughs> like it has right. an initial uh, start and then just keeps, uh, just keeps on, on rolling. Uh, I hear you saying that whiteness is something more than just cultural, social race narrative. It's a, it's a category of approach yes. that is mm-hmm. often embedded inside of a white, white culture, but it's, 
but it's more than that. And some people, uh, if that's what you mean, I think some people have a hard time getting that because sure. people will share examples and they'll say something like, well, you know, Zimmerman wasn't a white guy. He was a right. person of color. Like it mm -hmm. turns into, are you a white person or not? I think you mean whiteness in a more... Um, ideological. Yeah. Can, yeah. can you talk a bit about how you use it and, and why, yes. that's, why that's so, helpful for people? Thanks for asking that. That's good because it's important. And I think um, whiteness is not an ethnicity. Um, I think it, whiteness is a myth, it, but it is a myth that is really powerful. <laughs> it has very powerful Im implications. It's a, it's a normalization of white supremacy. And so it, if you think of it like a um, like degrees of whiteness, right? All of the goodies in America, if you're not a white person, like if you're not of European descent, but you kind of live into some of these uh, ideals of whiteness, right? Um, then you can touch the American dream, right? Like you can you can experience America in a certain type of way. And I think that that's what it what it means to me is that whiteness is America's like birth defect. It's not a person. Um, it, it's, it's embedded in the systems of a country that was built um, by people who believed in their own superiority, right? And their own supremacy. And so if you, if all of your legal systems, your institutions are, are built by people who believe that myth, well, then whiteness is everywhere. It is the air we breathe, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so it, it affects everyone. And I try to really kind of lean into that in the book um, because it is something that affects everyone. Um, and you really can only, um, you know, it's like a, we pay attention to the air, like with COVID, right? Like mm. we start wearing masks because now there's poison in the air. And I think, and that's a, and that's a vacuum, sorry. Right. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I mean, we wear these masks because now we know that there's something poisonous in the air. We cannot see it, but we know it is there. Mm. It is making people sick and it is making them die. And it's disproportionately making people of color die, yeah. right? Like we have a very interesting metaphor here. Um and so even in that, like people denying that it's real, right? I think there are yeah. so many levels of um, this thing. There are so many object lessons that it's it's time for us to really think about this thing and go, okay, we were wrong about that. Mm -hmm. That's all we have to say is like, we were wrong about that. Now, how do we, how do we uh, repent of that in our systems and institutions, mm. right? And I think especially as Christians, for us to not be having those conversations, it, it it's, it's, can be really off-putting for people. So then again, I ask, like, he gets who? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sure. yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we need to do something about that, right? Those of us that right. are, uh, are, are out in this business. And that's why your book is so helpful and so important. Um, I'm interested in your, in your thoughts on this. As, as I've heard people describe whiteness and some of the words mm -hmm. click with me really well. I get it. Like, I understand white supremacy. For some people, they're like, I don't even understand the word supremacy. Yes. I like to suggest, I, I heard someone do a training on diversity and the trainer said, yes. uh, how many of you believe in diversity? Raise your hand. And of course, you know, everybody there does. They're at a training center, you know, training offering for, on diversity. And then yeah. the trainer said, and when you say diverse, you mean diverse from what? And he said, if you mean diverse from white, that's where we're going to start. So it's what is the default? What is the norm? When people see that a white person, a white male is successful in America, nobody goes, well, look, there's a white male who made it work. 
But if you're a black female who makes it work, people start naming them, right? They're like athletes in Oprah. And they're like, no, see, it is possible. And that shows mm -hmm. that one is the default. That's not a surprise. One is the mm -hmm. exception to the rule. So it starts to just sort of show you. And so when people say supremacy, they mean it's the first or it's the norm or it's the one that's better than the others. And so the system mm -hmm. is, is designed to work mm -hmm. for them. Is that, is that how you... You know, think Absolutely. That way, does that connect with what you think? Absolutely. And I love that you, a white man, are explaining whiteness in such a beautiful way because it's like, you know, I've waited a long time <laughs> to hear that articulated uh, by someone who wasn't a person of color, right? Because <laughs> um, yeah. it gets tiring and it gets exhausting to tell everyone there's poison in the air. Look at all the people dying. <laughs> like, right. You know, it gets exhausting. Um, and so I think, you know, we, um, I'm just grateful for people like you and for voices like yours that are saying, this is what it is. Now that we know, what are we going to do, right? We're not, mm -hmm. you know, I personally am not after anyone sitting in shame. I've done that myself, right? Like, yeah. It's no fun for anybody. Um, but we do need to kind of acknowledge, and 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 now what are we going to do? Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? replace like, that with with beauty from, from yeah. ashes, you know, as the, the Absolutely. Of, a couple of years ago, I, I was part of a group that got arrested at the United States Supreme Court um, calling for the end of, uh, executions. And there were 17 of us who were arrested. And I think 11 of us were white people and were white males. Okay. And so we were all in jail overnight at the, at the Washington DC County jail mm -hmm. overnight. When the guard mm -hmm. came in, the person who was, you know, in charge of all that and was moving us from one area to the other, there were 47 people in the holding cell we were in. 11 of us were white just our group. There were no other white people that had been arrested that night, which is a little surprising, right? And the marshal comes in, a black man, and he looks at his, his cohorts working with him and he hits one of them on the arm and says, what are all these white guys doing in here? We don't get this very often. It must be one of those social protests, huh? He's calling out and making fun of the fact that every day they have a holding cell full of people. There's not white people in that thing. That's the wow. other side to sort of the default about who goes well is who does the system tend to arrest and hold down mm -hmm. and convict? Mm -hmm. And that's the other side of all of this. So when people mm -hmm. think, oh, you're just not, what people are claiming like you are in, in the need for us to unleaven, you're not just saying, sure. well, not everyone gets the best. You're also saying poison's <laughs> in the system and it's causing some rooms to be full of not white people and, <laughs> and 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 that that just goes on and on and on so i want to mm -hmm. i want to ask you this right like if some people if i'm sitting around with a group of people that come from white spaces and mm -hmm. they say well it was in 2015 where i started to kind of wake up to this there's sure. a whole lot of people who say mm -hmm. a little late for that it took you 20 <laughs> and they start naming as they should they go back yes. through history, right? And they're like, what took you so long? You made it all the way through high school. You made it all the way through college, right? There's this, it's an important narrative, right? Where we should say like, I should have been here sooner. I wish I'd been here sooner. Maybe I could, whatever your phrase is. How do you think about that as someone who sort of had your own awakening in this, yeah. you know, in this recent period? And some of that's yeah. just age, right? Like, like these are not issues that, that happened once. These are issues that are perennial in the United yeah. States. How do you think about that? Um, your own coming age and what do you say to other people who, you know, maybe are older than you or, or younger, but also are having awakenings 
you know, yeah. I don't know, eight years ago or now, you know. Uh, are, are you still, talking about people of color or, or white folks? Both, both. I mean, I know people, I have oh. friends who are people of color yeah. that have also said like they experience a lot of self-regret about not being in on these issues earlier. Um, yes. I don't yeah. hear that as much in real time as I do from, uh, you know, people that confide and a lot of the work we do, we end up talking to people about this stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not too late. So I think for me, there would be a different approach or something different, I would say, to each of the groups. I think if you're a white person that uh, a lot of, a lot of white folks, even around 2020, started to be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think during that time, it was very much like, uh, you know, I'm thinking this parable is popping in my head, so I'm just going to go with it, see yeah, where it goes. Yeah. But, um, you know, this this um, idea of the 11th hour and that everyone gets the same reward. Um, but I guarantee you that the folks who started, like, kind of working, uh, you know, or, like, dealing with all of this in 2012 are probably going to be a little bit more exhausted and not able to teach or be as patient um, or have the strength or the energy to kind of show you what to do at the 11th hour. Nice. And so... Um, you're you're gonna probably need to look somewhere else uh, than to the people who started back then. Um, but it's we all get the same reward, right? And the and that it, the reward is that we get free and and we get to live into I think even what America was supposed to be um, for black and people of color or uh, for BIPOC folks. I would say if you're just waking up, um, so sorry and. Um, I'm with you. I think there is a lot of uh, mourning and grief that goes with that. A lot of regret. Um, it's a painful, uh, very painful process because you uh, you just kind of find out who who really loves you, and um, uh, that's hard. And so I just want to say, like, uh, uh, it's worth it, but um, it is very difficult. But there are so many of us who have done this work, this deep work, um, and there are plenty of resources. Um, I can, so at, um, Naya Abernathy would be one of Earth and Stars and the Dignity Effect, Cole Arthur Riley and um, Black Liturgies. I mean, there are, there are a, a number of folks. Robert Monson wrote a book called um, Subversive Stillness. And so there are ways that we can kind of sort of reclaim ourselves um, and heal. Mm-hmm. But I think my recommendation would be uh, only do what you, you feel in your body you have capacity to do um, and 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 really take the, the process slow because it, it, it's a hard process. Uh, it's really hard. I want to I want to tag onto, uh, into one phrase you just used there because I know my wife will listen to this. And when you say mm-hmm. that phrase, only do what you know in your body you can do. She's big into this. The body holds the keeps the score and trauma yeah. and trauma informed work and trauma informed yeah. yoga. She does. So I yeah. I can already hear her uh, giving an amen <laughs> to that. Can you say hey, hey. a few more a few more things about why the body and what why you included that and why you not only included here in this conversation, but overall in the work you do? Yeah, I think that was, so really I owe it to to the therapist I was seeing because she said to me, um, you know, when everything was kind of falling apart, she said to me, hey, um, have you ever thought that maybe when you can't really trust what's going on in your mind and how you used to hear God and how you used to conceptualize mm-hmm. and all those things, 
is it possible that maybe God could be speaking to you in your body? Your body is a part of you. And literally it was like, wait, what? <laughs> My body's a part of me. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what witchcraft is this? Uh, but it really it was, uh, that was the first time I ever thought about bringing my body um, into my walk with God. <laughs> and I know that sounds so um, silly, but it, it was true. And um, it was helpful to me because I started to feel um, I had already started to feel things in certain spaces or at certain events. And it would be um, it was really bizarre, like panic attacks and hives and um, itching and sweating. It was really I'm um, hearing certain phrases, hearing certain songs. Um, it was just really a hard time. And I thought something was wrong. And she just said, you know, I think what you're having is a visceral reaction um, and your body's protecting you. Um, and that was the first time. I thought about that and, and that God can speak to us um, through our bodies. And it made me really lament some of the messages I heard about my body. Right. You, you, you know, with, you know, purity culture and then and then, you know, um, total depravity that will mess you up in terms of involving your body <laughs> in anything. <laughs> so I think like there's a real turning on self that takes place. Um, that it, it takes some time to recover, which is why I like, I really would uh, encourage people to listen to the body. Like, where are you feeling anxiety? Um, when you hear this message, what is the feeling? What does your body feel? Now sit in that feeling and ride that out. Now journal, you know, do some art. Like I've started to incorporate those things. Um, I married a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so that's part of it. <laughs> we do art therapy all the live long day over here. But I think like um, that's something that has been um, added to my spirituality um, and it's been beautiful and it's really been mm. grounding for me because um, I won't betray myself wow. um, in the name of God um, anymore. Mm. And I'm okay with saying that. So. Yeah. And and the divine would never call you to do so. So it's such a, such a great thing. Well, uh, Demise, I, I, was, I was proud to write an endorsement for the book and I, and I said that we all need uh, guides on this sojourn that we're on. And you gave a long list of people that have helped you and I know that you will be one of those people that is helping helping others. So. And uh, Faith Unleavened is one of those. If you're going to read books on these things, this is one you should include. And to me, this is someone you should follow and pay attention to. And if they want to, they can find you at all the places by obviously look, places. looking at your name and, and, and following <laughs> you on social media and inviting you to, to share and to speak at things and to talk about books. And I'm sure if you're willing to be on this podcast, you're willing to be on a lot of them. So maybe, maybe other people would uh, would be glad to have you. And uh, I hope you uh, uh, just all the best in all of this. And thank you, Doug. Thanks for being I appreciate a part of this today. And thanks for what you do too. Yeah, right on. Yeah, you, are, you are sure welcome. Well, thanks all. And uh, we will um, we'll be back with you uh, again tomorrow. So thanks for being a part of the Common Good Podcast. Mm -hmm.